Well, hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Harsh Reality. Man, it feels great to be back in studio and back behind the microphone. After a couple of weeks off, I've been traveling, I've been working like crazy, and so it feels great to be back with. I have a a jam-packed podcast today. With that, I've got a segment about the Colorado mass shooter. I've got a little bit about Ted Cruz, and then I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. I'm going to do a segment on an article from over at National Review, because normally I don't really have much in common with anybody at National Review anymore. So I was kind of happy to have a segment that we can do about that. I've got a segment, once again, where we've got mainstream media using old pictures to scare people. I've got a segment about a former federal prosecutor who's demanding loyalty pledges of businesses. This is Things get more Orwellian and scary all the time. I've got a bit about the Kavanaugh hearings. I've got a bit about Oral Roberts University. If you haven't heard about that, they have stormed into the Sweet 16. That is a tiny Christian college, but they are a Division I school, and they've knocked off a couple of giants in college basketball to make it to the Sweet 16, but they are being mercilessly bashed by mainstream media and corporate America, too. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, I've got a bit about that. Uh, Joe Biden has finally had a press conference. The thing is an absolute train wreck. But I have a number of items about Joe Biden. I've got a bit about diversity employees at Ohio State University. A play being canceled because they said, I mean, the entire play, an entire production. They said, you know what? The cast is just too white. I've got a bit about New York Times is redefining what factual means. I've got a fake GOP activist, which actually most of the folks over at National Review, you know how in the uh, mainstream media, they're always like, oh, well, uh, they they trot out conservatives. Like Jennifer Rubin over at uh, the Washington Post is one of those. Or they David French up at National Review. And basically, these are hardcore leftist Democrats who claim that they're Republicans. And anyway, so there's a young version of that that they've been pushing for a while, and turns out she's a complete fake, and we'll talk about that. And finally, I've got a bit about the January 6th protests or whatever there in Washington, D.C., the stuff that got out of hand, the mostly peaceful protests, I would call them, the insurrection and how those prosecutions are coming. So with that, let's get started. So I normally don't talk too much about these mass shootings because they get talked to death on network news and on the cable talk shows and talk radio and all that. And so I usually don't do too much about it, but I just wanted to do a little bit. You'll notice that this mass shooting has just completely gone away. I mean, it has disappeared. And the reason is, we know, because originally it was, hey, a, a white supremacist extremist went and killed a bunch of people. And then we find out he's actually a Muslim Syrian refugee and he attacked a kosher grocery store there in Colorado. And so everybody who was, you know, bashing white supremacist extremists or whatever for doing this terrible thing all started deleting their tweets. And and the whole thing has just completely gone off the radar because it doesn't help the narrative. It doesn't feed the narrative. And in fact, it kind of hurts the narrative. And so it's just completely dropped. But there was one particular thing that I saw out there because just like some of these other shooters, turns out this guy was already on the FBI's radar. I've got a story here from conservativetreehouse.com. It's entitled, Here We Go, FBI New Boulder, Colorado Suspect Identity Prior to the Shooting. Here's a little bit of that. Stop me when you've heard this before. The Boulder, Colorado shooter was named as a 21-year-old Ahmad Al-Aliwi Alisa 
earlier today. And then this gem from the New York Times, uh, quoting the Times, the suspect's identity was known to the FBI because he was linked to another individual under investigation by the Bureau, according to law enforcement officials. So they're quoting from the New York Times there. So back to the story. A reminder, 50 FBI agents were enlisted within the Trump-Russian investigation to push a narrative. It was a hoax. The, the Russian collusion thing was a hoax. They had 50 FBI agents working on that. That's my interjection there. The FBI sent 13 FBI agents to Talladega Speedway to investigate what turned out to be a garage pull-down rope that was in all the garages. It wasn't a noose that somebody hung in, what, is that a Bubba Wallace? Anyway, 13 FBI agents for that. So back to the story. Thousands of FBI hours have been spent investigating the January 6th Washington, D.C. protest, and once again, Another terrorist carries out a mass shooting where the FBI knew the suspect in advance. The FBI knew in advance the Pulse nightclub shooter, Omar Martin, and they were tipped off by the local sheriff. The FBI knew in advance about the San Bernardino terrorists, uh, Tashfeen Malik. The FBI knew in advance about the Boston Marathon bombers, the Sarnayev brothers. They were tipped off by the Russians. The FBI knew in advance about the Garland, Texas shooters, Elton Simpson and Nadir Sufi. The FBI knew in advance of the Parkland High School shooter, Nicholas Cruz. The FBI knew in advance of the Fort Hood shooter, Nidal Hassan. And now the FBI knew in advance of Ahmad al-Aliwi Alisa. These are just off the top of my head. Anyone notice a pattern? Meanwhile, the political FBI agents chase the ghosts of mysteriously invisible white supremacists conducting random acts of unidentified racism. So anyway, you can check that out over on Conservative Treehouse. It's entitled, here we go, FBI knew the Boulder, Colorado suspect identity prior to the shooting. So that's really all I wanted to talk about regarding the Colorado shooting. Okay, so maybe there was one more thing I wanted to bring up. These days where we hear that mass shootings happen all the time and it's a, it's a white supremacist, white extremist thing. They keep showing the same ones, you'll notice. Actually, over at Gateway Pundit, uh, Jim Hoft's outfit there in uh, St. Louis. He's got a picture on a story entitled Photo Collage Reveals Who Commits the Mass Shootings in the USA. And so uh, if you look at the picture, I'm not going to describe it to you, mass shooters in 2019, and they have this photo collage of all of them. And one of the things you'll notice when you look at this photo collage, which by the way, mass shooting is um, defined as a shooting where there are four or more people shot in a single incident. So one of the things that you'll notice is this picture doesn't look like anything that mainstream media is pushing out as a narrative as to, you know, who these dangerous shooters are. So stop there. One of the things I thought about when I saw this picture is Bill de Blasio, uh, maybe last summer, if you remember, Bill de Blasio was asked about a mass shooting. I'm making air quotes with my fingers. And he was like, oh, no, that's that's not a mass shooting because there was like 12 people shot at a and at several killed. I can't, I can't remember how many at a like a family reunion or something in a park. And he said, that's not a mass shooting. And they're like, what do you mean? What a mass? It was like 12 people were shot and you know some people were killed. And he said, no, that's not a mass shooting. He said, that's a neighborhood dispute. And they're like, what do you why don't you count that as a mass shooting? He said, we just don't. Those are neighborhood disputes. So anytime there's a drive-by shooting at a, you know, at a family reunion in the park, or anytime there's a, a shootout at a, a barbecue, or there's a block party that ends up with, uh, you know, with a bunch of people shot. 
those are specifically by de Blasio and maybe uh, that, that Lori Lightfoot in Chicago and others. They specifically don't count that as a mass shooting because those are in a separate category. They say those are neighborhood disputes. Those are personal beefs or those are gang violence or, you know, that sort of thing. But they're not mass shootings. When you don't go into it, you know, trying to carve out exceptions for what most of them are, and you just say, look, if four or more people were shot at a single incident, then that's a mass shooting, and and you include all of those, and you put everything up together, then it really paints a completely different picture than what the mainstream media is putting out there. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Anyway, you can find that over at gatewaypundit.com. You know, I've always liked Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz seems like a straight shooter. Uh, I'm not really sold on the beard. Some people like it. I think my wife says he looks he looks pretty good with a beard. So, you know, there's he, he does look a lot more um, mature with the beard, especially with the kind of the salt and pepper gray thing going that he's that he's got because he does have a baby face. Ted Cruz though is constantly shooting straight and saying what I know a lot of people are thinking, but he killed it this week with a reporter, and I wanted you to hear this exchange. Uh, yeah, when I'm talking to the TV camera, I'm not going to wear a mask, and all of us have been immunized, so... Uh, you're welcome to step away if you like. The whole, the whole point of a vaccine, CDC guidance is what we're following. Okay, so in case you didn't get what, this is a reporter talking to him. And uh, by the way, this clip is from C-SPAN. The reporter, as he walks up to the podium, the reporter says, would you mind putting on a mask for us? And Cruz responded, yeah, when I'm talking to the TV camera, I'm not going to wear a mask. All of us, and he gestures to the people around him, all of us have been immunized. And then the reporter says, it'd make us feel better. And Cruz said, you're welcome to step away if you'd like. And speaking of Ted Cruz's comment about, hey, we've been immunized and we're following CDC guidance. It's the science that we're doing. And so this isn't about your feelings. Uh, I saw there's a um, there's a website that is makes these stickers. I don't know what you call that. It's like uh, guerrilla politics, it's sort of like they do on campuses or wherever with the chalk on the on the sidewalk. Political messages that are done in unconventional ways. But they've got these stickers, and this one I saw that you know you can put on envelopes or, or whatever. It's, they're like envelope-sized stickers. This one I like. It says, The idea that healthy people are endangering others simply by breathing is the biggest scam in the history of the world. And that's basically what Ted Cruz was saying right there. I love it. As mentioned in the opening of the program, I rarely ever do anything, a a story, or talk about things from National Review. And the reason is because the National Review is basically, uh, they're basically apologists for the Democrat Party. They're not conservatives. And they used to be conservative. That was Bill Buckley's outfit. But that's they're conservative ink, but they don't conserve anything. They just follow along with, with different ideas for how to accomplish Democrat goals. So if, like for instance, if Democrats say, we should raise taxes $10 billion. You know, National Review will come in. No, we oppose that. We should only raise taxes $9 billion. You know, and you're like, well, do we need to raise taxes at all? I mean, are you really being conservative? Basically, the folks at National Review and Conservative Inc. and Bill Crystal and, like I said, all the, Jennifer Rubin, they're where Democrats were maybe six months ago or a year ago. They'll argue for that position. So as the left continues going left, 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 
then you've got these folks who say, well, we'll go ahead and go left, but just not that far left. That's really all they're doing. But they had a pretty good article uh, over there this week, and it's entitled The Never-Ending Persecution of Jack Phillips. Now, Jack Phillips is the, uh, uh, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop there in Colorado, and this is a pretty good piece. So I wanted to share a little bit of it with you and give National Review some kudos, which I don't, there's really not anything else positive to say about him. So uh, anyway, here's a little bit of that story. This is by David Harsignani over there at National Review. Jack Phillips, owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood, Colorado, is back in court. At this rate, the poor man will probably be badgered to his grave. Phillips earned his unwanted fame after an unelected gaggle of authoritarians at the Colorado Civil Rights Commission embarked on a six-year bigoted crusade to wreck his business after the baker refused to design a specialty cake for a gay wedding ceremony in 2012. It is perhaps irrelevant to those of us who believe in religious liberty and a free association, but gay marriage hadn't even been legalized in Colorado or recognized by federal courts at that time. In reality, Phillips was punished for a thought crime. Even before the Obergefell ruling encouraged a culture of trivializing the First Amendment, Colorado tried to destroy his livelihood because he would not affirm, acknowledge, or implicitly endorse the worldview of a culturally approved class of customer. And after years of fiscal hardship, Phillips finally won a 2018 Supreme Court decision in which the court ruled that the Colorado commissioners had displayed a clear and impermissible hostility towards sincere religious beliefs in their efforts to punish him. This was a polite way of saying that the unhinged members of that commission had likened the largely powerless Phillips to Nazis and segregationists because he didn't want to bake a cake. While the 7-2 Supreme Court decision was a personal victory for Phillips, it did little to preserve religious liberty or free expression. Even today, a customer can walk into a business with the force of government behind them and demand a business owner create a product with overt political and religious messages that do not comport with that business owner's sincerely held convictions. And it is always worth reiterating that Phillips never declined to serve a gay couple in 2012, as so many misleading media reports claim. Now, I'm going to interject something here because this is something that I have said from the beginning, and I'm I'm really the only commentator that I know of who's kind of gone here. And I've kicked this around with some of my, you know, some of my, my liberal attorneys, and we've talked about this issue, and they were like, you know, I've never really heard it put that way. They weren't discriminating against these people. They will serve these people. They'll serve anybody. He'll, these businesses that have been attacked, they'll serve anybody that comes in. It's that I'm not participating in certain events. I can make some analogies here, but I don't want anybody to misunderstand, and I don't want to get too far afield from, uh, uh, from the article that I'm reading. But basically, that's the crux of it. Anybody, any person is welcome to come in there and buy any of the products or get any of the services that this business offers. So, you know, if you come in and say, I want you to give me uh, kosher meat. And it's like, well, we don't do meat. We do bakery. Well, you're, I want you to do kosher meat. And if you don't do kosher meat for me, then you're, you're a bigot and you're violating my civil rights. And you go, well, I don't do meat. This is a bakery. And, and that's kind of what's going on. He's, he's not saying, I won't serve you. 
He's saying, I don't do that event that you're trying to get me to design a cake for. And here in a little bit in the story, you'll see where he's been dragged back into court again over uh, people are wanting him to draw satanic dildo pot smoking cakes or something like that. And he's like, no. So that's what that, but I'll, we'll get to that in just a second. But back to the story. The couple, like everyone else, was free to buy anything they pleased in Masterpiece Cake Shop. Phillips refused to design a new cake from scratch for an event that he felt undermined the sanctity of marriage. If it had been a pornographic cake or a body design for a masochistic heterosexual bachelor party, he wouldn't have made that cake either. Phillips isn't discriminating against people. He's discriminating about the things that he is willing to say. All the Supreme Court has done is allow these cases to be adjudicated by judges who will use their mind-reading skills to discern everyone's real intentions. After all, if a former Colorado Civil Rights Commissioner Diane Rice hadn't been a preening ignoramus while smearing religious Americans, then the commission probably would have gotten away with it. If commissars of a similar kangaroo court keep their small thoughts to themselves, victims will have little recourse because SCOTUS has dissuaded no one. Which brings us to the latest lawsuit. On June 26, 2017, the day the court agreed to hear Phillips's case, Autumn Scardina, a transgender activist, called the Masterpiece Cake Shop and asked Phillips to design a custom cake with a blue exterior and pink interior to symbolize an illusory transition from male to female. Well, Phillips politely turned Scardina down because Phillips, and if you ever met the man, you'd know, is polite to everyone, including his numerous harassers. Scardina claimed, I was stunned, she told the Civil Rights Commission in her initial complaint. You may not be surprised to learn that Scardina hadn't asked the most famous Christian baker in the nation to create a transition cake by happenstance. Phillips's lawyers suspect Scardina called because... Her name came up on the caller ID. She requested an image of Satan smoking marijuana. And then later, an email was sent to the shop demanding that he create a three-tiered white cake with a large figure of Satan licking a nine-inch black dildo that could be turned on before we unveil the cake. So that's why he's back in court. The director of the Colorado Civil Rights Division found probable cause in Scardina's complaint, but ended up dropping the case after being sued by Alliance Defending Freedom in federal court. After years of harassing Phillips and a loss in the high court, Colorado almost surely would have lost again. But rather than appealing the commission's dismissal, Scardina then herself filed a lawsuit against Phillips seeking damages and fines and attorney fees, and here we are back in court. So in court this week, Scardina's lawyer finally admitted that her client intentionally targeted Phillips. This is from the Associated Press. Scardina said she called Phillips Masterpiece Cake Shop to place the order after hearing about the court's announcement because she wanted to find out if he really meant it. When her lawyer, Paula Greeson, asked whether the call was a setup, she said it was not. Well, it was more of calling someone's bluff, she said. And so back to the story. What kind of person would subject himself to nine years of fines, threats, ugly taunts, and lawsuits over a cake? A pious one. Phillips isn't a bluffer. That's why Scardina, the ACLU, the Colorado government, and many in the media keep targeting the man. They want to break him, to send you a message. So hats off to National Review for a fantastic article. 
Hey, I'd like to take this opportunity to encourage you to head on over to WND.com and check out my latest national column entitled Press Freedom is Showing Cracks from Leftist Abuse. Now, this is from something that happened over the last uh, week or so where a federal judge, uh, Lawrence Silberman there on the, uh, he's a senior appellate judge on uh, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. He was writing a dissent, but it was fascinating because what he's talking about is the uh, it's it's a case he's in he's in favor of overturning or at least questioning whether we should be talking about overturning the Times versus Sullivan uh, landmark uh, Supreme Court ruling from 1964. So in that decision, the Supreme Court said that in a lawsuit for defamation, a public figure plaintiff has to prove that a reporter acted with actual malice in reporting something that that was false. That's a that's basically an impossibly high standard unless the reporter admits that they actually lied on purpose, which they're not going to. And so what happens is you end up with situations like the whole Russian collusion hoax and all the stuff that CNN and MSNBC and NBC and CBS and ABC and and Fox and all all, all of these were just chattering, 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 all this stuff that's now that's provably false, and yet there's no consequences for them because the Times versus Sullivan decision from 1964 says I mean, Donald Trump can never, he's never going to win a defamation suit for all this reporting of outrageous lies against him. And you say, well, the freedom of the press, that's a, I mean, that's enshrined in the First Amendment. And then on top of that, the Supreme Court gave even more protections to the media. But it's been so abused. And Judge Silberman points that out in his dissent that we now have a esteemed jurist on a federal appeals court who's floating the idea that, you know what, what's the point? Because the, the point of the freedom of the press is to have this varied, rich diversity of opinion out there. And he's like, but there's it's not diversity of opinion. These media outlets, major media is basically just one big monolithic liberal he called it, it's essentially Democratic Party broadsheets. That's not what the First Amendment was about. That's not what the freedom of the press is about. That's not what it was supposed to enforce. And so if we're trying to protect this, the folks that are enjoying these special legal protections, they're not even taking it seriously. In fact, they're doing the opposite of what these freedoms and these protections were supposed to encourage. Anyway, I'd encourage you to go check it out. It's over at WND.com. It's easy enough to find. Just go to your favorite search engine and put in my name, Sean Harshi, and WND. And what you'll get is uh, one of the top hits that'll come back is my author page at WorldNet Daily. Click on that link and you'll get to my author page and you'll see all of my weekly columns there on uh, WND.com. And the latest one is always right on top. So once again, you can go over there and check that out. It's Press Freedom is starting to show cracks from leftist abuse. I'd like to take this time to encourage you to head on over to whatfinger.com. I have people ask me all the time. They say, man, I, I can't go to that other major news aggregator anymore. It's it's just, it's basically mainstream media all compressed in one place. I, I don't even go there anymore. And their traffic is way down. Well, guess what? The number one alternative news aggregator on the entire internet is whatfinger.com. And they're number one for a reason. Probably all of the stories that we're going to talk about on our program today, you can find them in one place. It's a one-stop shop. It's over at whatfinger.com. They not only have all the these 
links to things like Breitbart and Daily Caller and Conservative Treehouse, we were talking about them, or WND. But they also have some links to mainstream media with articles that will be of interest to conservatives, conservative commentators, uh, I mean, anything, videos, funny memes, it's all there. One place, whatfinger.com. I talk about whatfinger.com because I use whatfinger.com, and you should too. It's whatfinger, like thumbs up, thumbs down. It's actually in their logo. It's whatfinger, whatfinger.com. So back to the media. They're just shameless. So over the past few years, remember we've seen uh, they used fake pictures or old pictures regarding the, uh, the kids in cages and all that. Remember when that came out? They write these stories about how horrible and inhumane and racist Donald Trump was. And they had these pictures of appalling conditions in, in Trump's concentration camps and all that. And then come to find out, the pictures were, were from 2013 and 2014. They were pictures that actually were from the Obama administration. And so they didn't have any pictures that, or conditions were much better. I don't know what was going on, but the worst pictures they could find were actually from the Obama era. They lied. It was fake. Fake news. They put that out. And then if you remember during the COVID thing, oh, they had pictures of bodies stacked up. And, and, and then come to find out later, you're like, well, wait a second. That's a picture from 2008 in, you know, after a, you know, a hurricane or something in, in Beirut. I, I, who even knows? A terror attack in Beirut. You know, that these aren't, these pictures are fake. Again, they kept using all these out, outrageous photos in order to, stoke this this panic or fear or scare you or whatever. And so during COVID-19, I mean they were they were doing they got caught doing that all the time. I've got a story here from Breitbart. MSNBC members use photo from 2019 to shame Miami Spring Breakers over coronavirus. Here's a little bit of that story. Reporters and contributors from MSNBC attempted to shame Florida's spring break tourism boom with a photograph from a year before the coronavirus pandemic began. So MSNBC analyst and University of Miami professor Fernand Amandi tweeted on Sunday that, quote, today's center of the COVIDiots universe is Miami Beach, Florida, and tweeted out a picture of a crowded uh, beach with people enjoying the sunshine, enjoying the water, boat pulling up there. It looks like there's some beach umbrellas. Everybody's having fun. Yeah, it turns out that was from a year before even the coronavirus thing happened. But the way he put it out, he said today's center is, well, okay, I presume that's a picture from today. No, it's a big fat lie because they lie all the time. They can't help it. We're going to slide on over to WND.com now for a story about an, another example of we are descending into Orwellian. It's frightening, really. Uh, this I've got a story here entitled, Democracy pledged to press every business to declare 2020 election was fair. Here's a little bit of that story. A progressive activist is pressing American businesses to adopt his opinion and declare to the public that the 2020 election was legitimate. Glenn Kirshner, who's a former federal prosecutor, who's now an analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, is promoting his democracy pledge, according to the Huffington Post. The pledge states that, quote, the 2020 presidential election was free and fair and produced accurate, reliable results, end quote. Kirshner warned that he will publicize the names of companies that decline to adopt his opinion or don't respond. Can you imagine an election that was so free and so fair 
that you have to force everybody to say that it was free and fair. When's the last time you ever even heard of anything like this? Can you imagine something that's so obviously true that you have to you have to force people under threat of economic harm, you have to agree that this fact is true. That's one of those things where you're like, methinks thou doth protest too much. I like Chuck Grassley. He's the uh, former Senate Judiciary Committee chairman. And he actually asked this week a good question because, you know, the news cycle moves so fast. And it seems like the Kavanaugh hearings were, you know, 20 years ago. In reality, they weren't that long ago. But I've got a story here from townhall.com. Grassley, why hasn't anyone who lied under oath about Kavanaugh been prosecuted? Here's a little bit of that story. Former Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley, who oversaw the chaotic confirmation hearings of now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, wants to know why individuals who made false claims under oath still haven't been prosecuted. After a lengthy investigation, the committee found that all allegations made against Kavanaugh, including by Maine Democrat witness Christine Balsey Ford, lacked evidence. Worse, provably false allegations were made under oath and a number of individuals were referred to the Department of Justice for prosecution. The lack of evidence was detailed in a 500-page report, which was published in November 2018. Committee investigators found no verifiable evidence that supported Dr. Ford's allegations against Justice Kavanaugh. The witnesses that Dr. Ford identified as individuals who could corroborate her allegations failed to do so, and in fact contradicted her. But his point is a good one. All these people who lied under oath would have gotten away with it, and everything would have been fine. They didn't get away with it, and they're still fine anyway. They can say, if you're on one particular side of the political aisle, you can do anything from go into uh, into the U.S. Senate, raise your right hand, and make outrageous accusations, criminal accusations, against sitting members of the federal bench, against nominees for the Supreme Court of the United States, outrageous lies, and you don't have to worry about it. Nothing's going to happen to you. Or at the other end of the spectrum, you can go and burn down entire cities, police departments, turn over police cars, attack federal agents, throw rocks through windows, loot stores, do anything, and nobody's going to say anything to you. You don't have to worry about prosecution. Meanwhile, if you're a police officer who attends a Trump rally where some other people walk about a mile away and get out of hand over at the Capitol, you can lose your job. But at the end of the day, I guess this really doesn't matter. I mean, Senator Grassley's right. But at the end of the day, Brett Kavanaugh, come to find out, is basically just another Chief Justice Roberts. He's a liberal Supreme Court justice who happened to be appointed by a Republican president. Bad deal all around. So you know the Cinderella story of this year's NCAA March Madness, the basketball tournament, is tiny Oral Roberts University. And this happens, it seems like every year or two, you'll have a super low seed, like a 15, 16 seed, will will pull off some kind of miracle, maybe a 14 seed, and they'll make it into the Sweet 16, which in order to do that from that from being seeded that low, you got to beat some big uh, uh, some of the big programs. 
So it's kind of a David and Goliath thing, and everybody likes the underdog. But I've got a bit here from uh, investigative reporter Leo Homan over at leohoman.com. It's a pretty great article. I'll just uh, give you a little bit of it. It's entitled, Corporate Media Giant Tries to Get Tiny Christian College Banned from NCAA Athletics. You won't believe why. Here's a little bit of that story. Ever wonder where people in the corporate-owned media establishment get their bizarre ideas and hateful attitude? towards everyone who refuses to accept their twisted definitions of benign-sounding words like equality and inclusiveness. Take, for example, the way USA Today attacked Oral Roberts University, mocking and ridiculing the school in a hateful editorial meant to tarnish what was a brilliant moment for the Golden Eagles men's basketball team in advancing to the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament. Oral Roberts, a tiny evangelical Christian school in Tulsa, Oklahoma, knocked off two titans of college basketball, Ohio State and Florida, to earn its spot in the Sweet 16. But here comes USA Today with its brutal attempt to demonize the college for its, quote, archaic and deeply bigoted stance on LGBTQ ideology, which just happens to be the biblical Christian stance for the last 2,000 years. In the article titled, Oral Roberts University Isn't the Feel-Good March Madness Story We Need, the newspaper published its attack piece calling for the NCAA to ban Oral Roberts from all participation in NCAA sporting events. Anyway, I liked Mr. Homan's take on it, and you can check that out. It's over at leohoman.com. That's L-E-O-H-O-H-M-A-N-N. So Homan, H-O-H-M-A-N-N. Leohoman.com. Wanted to give a shout out to him here on the Harsh Reality Podcast. All right, so Joe Biden came out and finally had a presser this past week, and man, it was painful. If you've watched it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't watched it, you really don't need to. I wish I hadn't seen it. It was bad. Contrast this with the previous presidency. Donald Trump was super available to the media. The media hated him. I never understood why he went on some of these programs, why he went on George Stephanopoulos, or why he sat down with uh, with some of the people he did. These people openly hated him, and they attacked him in these interviews, and he went in there and fought back. I guess he just likes you know squaring off with them. I'm not sure, but over the past uh, during this past election cycle. Joe Biden was nowhere to be found during the election. I mean, he literally stayed in his basement. And any kind of events or activities they had going on, they had all these surrogates, mostly his wife, but they had all these other surrogates out there campaigning on his behalf, and he just stayed out of the spotlight. In fact, there's never been anything like that in American political history where a candidate was so just off the radar invisible. Well, he's continued that since being inaugurated. He hasn't come out and made himself available for the media at all. I mean, just he's been hiding away. And the media has started to say, hey, is, uh, are we ever going to get to talk to the president? Is he ever going to come out to the podium? Or is he ever going to sit down with anybody? Or, you know, what's going on? Well, so it, it's been bad. So this was uh, really a terrible week. And even even on the left in the media, they're like, uh, in fact, I think uh, James Carville had a fun, he's always good for a quote. James Carville said, I'd give, I'll give him a D on that. He goes, but that's because I'm a generous grader. So anyway, James Carville, always good for a great quote. But anyway, come to find out, uh, when he came out and did his, uh, his presser, what they had done was his staff had gone out and they got the questions in advance, and then they worked up what his answers were going to be. And So it's not really a presser. It's not really people asking questions and him answering the questions. It's him reading the answers that his staff has come up with for these questions. And so he had a cheat sheet. But the worst part of the cheat sheet is 
so that he knows who to call on and he knows who not to call on. They have all these pictures. And so as he was holding it up and he's trying to read it and he's looking at his notes and people could see the cameras caught his cheat sheet of pictures. Oh, okay, I'm going to this one next. And then, you know, he's like, and they're going to ask you this and go to this answer on your cheat sheet over here. This is going to be your answer. And so here's, he got all mixed up. He got a little confused. And so here's just a little bit of this thing. Incredibly awkward. Okay. Um, hang on. Uh, sorry. Oh, Miss Kim. Okay, so if, if what's going on here is during that, okay, uh, uh, I'm sorry. He's like shuffling through his notes. He's trying to read who he's supposed to call on next. And then you see he was like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, uh, Kim. You know, so he looked over once he saw the picture of her and he had to look around the room to see which one was her. Oh, okay, that's her. That's the next question I'm going to answer. And it was just, it, it was awful, absolutely awful. He had an entire binder of notes waiting for him at the podium. And, you know, th- I mean, this just tells you the difference is when you go out there and answer questions and you, you just answer questions because you're actually in charge and you actually know what's going on, or you've been briefed up about, you know, what's likely to be asked, or these are the hot topics for today, whatever that, you know, it, we don't have any of that. It's all just scripted control, et cetera. And finally on the Joe Biden topic, uh, this week, man, I'll tell you what, this was tough for him. He referred to uh, Vice President Kamala Harris as President Harris. And so it's it's one of these things where this keeps slipping out. And so, you know, once or twice you say, all right, you know, that's, that's a mistake. That's a slip of the tongue. That's a Freudian slip, or I guess. I don't know. When she keeps getting called President Harris, I, I think everybody has some plans that they're not sharing with everyone. I always wondered what like a diversity official on a university campus does. So you say they have an eight hour day, 40 hours a week. I don't know how many that, how many hours that works out to a year, but you've got these campus officials. And if if you had one and what do they do? So maybe they, they look over uh, reports about diversity. You know, are we diverse or are we not diverse? You know, if they spot something that's not diverse, then maybe they could say, Hey, let's, we need to talk about having some diversity in that. And maybe they have a secretary, so there'd be two. But I, there, I just talked about it. And so that was like 30 seconds. And, you know, so what would somebody do for 40 hours a week as a permanent job as a diversity officer? And so then, then you find out, oh, well, they have a whole department and they have lots and lots of people. And so I've got this article from over here at the College Fix entitled Ohio State Employs 150 Diversity Officials. Now it's going to hire 50 professors focused on social and racial justice. Here's a little bit of that story. Ohio State University recently announced it plans to hire 50 faculty members focused on addressing social equity and racial disparities. The news comes as an economics professor and higher education watchdog calculated that the public university currently employs 150 diversity officials at a cost of $12 million annually. Anyway, that's all I'm going to read from the story, but... I'm thinking 150 people at 40 hours a week. What what in Sam Hill are these people doing all day? There's a dinner theater in Minnesota has decided to just cancel the entire uh, their entire production. This is their annual production of Cinderella. 
And this is from the Washington Examiner. Cinderella production canceled over concerns the cast is too white. Here's a little bit of that story. A planned production of Cinderella has been canceled over concerns that the cast was too white. Quote, it was 98% white, artistic director Michael Brindisi said of the cast. That doesn't work with what we're saying we're going to do. Chanhassen Dinner Theaters in Minnesota has now decided to scrap the project altogether and will instead turn to producing Footloose in 2022. Quote, after careful consideration and with our ongoing commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, Chanhassen Dinner Theaters has made the decision to cancel our upcoming production of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. Our hope in beginning the production process again with a new title will allow us to put into practice an intentional process based on the work we've been doing towards equity and inclusivity. So I don't really have anything else to say about this, but I just thought it was kind of funny. Uh, speaking of things just being completely fake, uh, which, uh, you know, we're like MSNBC pushing out pictures and folks, talk, you know, fake pictures from kids in cages and all that. Uh, the New York Times, which, uh, of course, Judge Silberman called a Democratic Party broadsheet. The New York Times used to have a reputation for honesty and fair reporting and accurate reporting and all that. In their litigation with Project Veritas, they've actually kind of, they're trying to redefine what's what's factual news, what a fact is. They're trying to redefine what truth is. And so I've got this story here from independentsentinel.com entitled New York Times argues it's factual news if it can't be proven true or false. Here's a little bit of that story. Project Veritas, a conservative guerrilla watchdog, as you probably know, has won a big victory in their defamation lawsuit against the New York Times. It was not dismissed. The lawsuit stems from two articles that included opinion in allegedly factual news articles. The judge would not dismiss the case against the Times as they requested, using one of the most ridiculous defenses yet. The Times claims it was okay to put opinion in the news articles without anything to back it up because it's true in some cases or it can't be proven either way. They also don't believe it has to be factual in a politically charged atmosphere. That's what the New York Times passes off as news. At least now you know. So you know how mainstream media, uh, they want to make it look like they're uh, including the other side. They want to make it look like they're including conservatives and making quotation marks my fingers. And so they'll drag out Jennifer Rubin, who's a, a unhinged Trump-hating, I, I think she needs professional help. She's so outrageously off her rocker. Anybody who hates anybody like that is has got problems. But uh, her, Bill Crystal, that David French from over at National Review, whatever. And they, they say, okay, we've got both sides on here. We have Democrats and Republicans, but they're all Trump bashing. And they're all bashing the GOP base. And they're all bashing conservatives. So it's not really diversity of opinion. It's not really a diversity of point of view. And again, that's what Judge Silberman was talking about. But the latest thing, that, that one, of the, one of the latest things that they're pushing is, oh, all these young people, all these young Republicans, they hate the Republican Party and they really want to take it back from the Republican base. They really want to set it on a good path where they're bipartisan and they're agreeing with Democrats and they're, yeah, there's all these young people, man, they're, they got these attractive young people and they're, anyway, Gen Z GOP is uh, one of the faces of these young people that they're trotting out, which are really just young versions of David French and Jennifer Rubin and and Bill Crystal and, I guess, Mitt Romney. But uh, one of those, 
Uh, turns out people like looked into her past and come to find out she's she's not a Republican. I mean, you kind of can you kind of could have guessed that. But uh, this comes to us from MediaRightNews.com. Here's a little bit of that story. Conservative pundit and political candidate Pete Debroska has exposed a Gen Z GOP activist as potentially nothing more than a liberal in disguise. Sadly, that's a lot of Republicans these days. Nevertheless, this one is particularly interesting. Not too many Republican activists volunteered for Hillary Clinton and showed up to anti-gun protests, but that's exactly what Ellie Calise, as she goes by on Twitter, has in her history. That's all I'm going to read from that story. But anyway, she's supposedly the Generation Z Republican, but come to find out she's actually a Hillary Democrat and an anti-gun activist. So how's things coming with the prosecution of all the folks who showed up for that uh, mostly peaceful protest uh, on January 6th? Uh, The Department of Justice, you know, they've arrested 200 people and a lot more people have been fired from their jobs or whatever from being there because of insurrection and sedition, which, I mean, nobody ever gets charged with either one of those. So anyway, I've got this story from Independent Sentinel. DOJ is not finding any insurrectionists uh, or seditionists from the January 6th riot. Here's a little bit of that story. The Justice Department has since the January 6th Capitol riot acknowledged in court hearings that some of its evidence concerning the riot is not as damning as initially indicated. A charge of sedition, meaning incitement of a rebellion, has not been brought against any of the more than 400 people arrested to date. Okay, I stand corrected. I thought it was 200. The most serious charges have been assault, conspiracy, uh, obstruction of Congress or law enforcement, according to Reuters. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. These are all mostly conspiracy can't stand on its own. That's an inchoate offense. So it has to be conspira- uh, conspiracy to commit something. I think it has to be a felony. So conspiracy isn't something on its own. And obstruction of Congress, I like that. So they that's one of the ones that they tried to impeach President Trump for because they said that you know he wouldn't come down and testify. They demand that he testify or that he send his his people to testify. And he's like, yeah, he did the same thing that the presidents have done and said, yeah, we're not doing that. And so it's, you're obstructing Congress. So anyway, I'm curious how that's going to, that's going to turn out. But anyway, with that, we're going to have to wrap things up and I appreciate your feedback. If you want to get with me, you can go over to my website. It's seanharshey.com. Go over to the contact us tab and fill out the little form and that'll send an email directly to me, or you can reach me on WND.com. When you go over there and check out my article, this week's is entitled Press Freedom is Showing Cracks from the Leftist Abuse. Uh, Click on my name next to my picture there, and that'll take you to a short bio about me and also a way that you can email the author, and that will also send an email directly to me through WND.com. So I encourage you to check out my latest national column over there. I encourage you to participate in the uh, commentary that's at the bottom in the comment section, or if you want to drop me a note with what you think about the podcast or my national column, I always love hearing from listeners and readers. So that wraps up episode 89. I will see you next week in the month of April for episode 90 of the Harsh Reality Podcast. I hope you have a great week. I'm Sean Harshy, and this is the Harsh Reality.